One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. However, I suspect if you're a long-term listener, you've already done those things. So, here is today's guest. It's Craig Doyle. How Hello. are you? I'm great. How are you keeping? You well? Very, very well, thanks. Now, I would just like to say, in my brief adventure in podcasting, I've interviewed a few people, and we've had a few rugby players come to the dungeon directly in chat, and my wife has not said a single thing. However, upon hearing that Craig Doyle was coming on, she got very excited indeed. <laughs> well, that's very, that's very nice to hear. Say hello to her for me, won't you? <laughs> I certainly yeah. will. No, that's very kind of her. Um, you didn't say whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. You just said it happened. But I'm going with the good side good. of this. Good. It was definitely good. It was definitely good. Uh, what have you been up to today, Craig? Because I kind of gather you do quite a lot of travelling. Yeah, it's kind of constant, isn't it? Uh, I live in Ireland uh, now, uh, for the time being anyway. Um, and actually, I am sitting in my office and... Not at the moment because it's dark, but in the first thing in the morning, I can see right across through the Wicklow Hills and I can see Wales. So I do feel like I have a connection, a physical connection with the United Kingdom all the time when I'm uh, when I'm here. But um, yeah, we moved we moved back here when when child number three arrived and then child number four. Um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And with my parents and stuff getting older, they needed my help. So uh, so this is where we are at the moment. So I'm but I'm in and out of uh, out of uh, the UK, you know, maybe two, three times a week. So, um, yeah, I'm here on a Wednesday night, which is good. Two, uh, three times a week? Yeah, so is yeah. That, is that all rugby stuff? Not all rugby stuff. There's the odd window to sell, of course. And uh, we also have <laughs> a production course, yes. company. <laughs> so uh, that has me over there quite a bit. But, um, yeah, mainly rugby stuff. BT would be the nearest thing I have to a full-time job. That takes up most of my year. And I'll be with them for another, what, three or four years anyway. So, um I would travel in and out for them quite a lot. But to be honest with you, like I could be in Leicester, Coventry, Newcastle, Exeter, you know, like all of us who, who follow the Gallagher Premiership. So I don't have to be in London anymore. You know, it's as easy for me to hop on a plane into Birmingham as it is for the guys to drive from, you know, the lads who are living down in Devon and have to do a Newcastle game. That doesn't thrill them too much. So um, I don't mind jumping in a plane. It's easy. OK, so everyone who knows you from the TV will obviously associate you with the Gallagher Premiership and your coverage there. But you've just mentioned a production company. Uh, what's that about, Craig? Because I know nothing about that. Uh, I've kept that under my hat. Um, well, it's kind of, it's where I started, actually. I started life uh, as a BBC radio news producer in news and sport in regional radio um, after I was in college in London in a place called the LC. I think the hipsters are called it the LCC now. It's a bit okay. trendier now. But uh, it was a journalism training college and the BBC came in and they used to poach the odd few of us over the course of a year. And I ended up in uh, East Anglia, which I absolutely loved for about three or four years. 
uh, presenting and producing news and sports programs. And then I ended up getting into the BBC television and working my way through there. So that, that stuff never really leaves you. So I've always kind of tipped away at it. And I've had other production companies here and there. But this one is very specific to sport. Um, a young fella, I tell you, he might be a player someday, called Brian O'Driscoll. And, and oh, I yeah. um, ha- have this production company. And we recently made a documentary called Shoulder to Shoulder. Which we'll be talking yeah. plenty about later. Ah, Right. Um, so, so that, so that was the that, that's um, that's all part of that. So we do lots of different things. You know, um, the documentary, I guess, is the kind of glitzier part of it. But there's lots of other unseen work that goes on with that. You know. So your original background was basically reading sports 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 bulletins for local radio. Yeah, sports news, BBC Radio Suffolk, the voice of the county, the headlines, the man who found his feet in his shoes. The dog that barks, that kind of stuff. Yeah, big news stories. Um, and sports bulletins were all part of that as well. And then I'd come in and do Saturday sport for them and do the odd rugby match when I could. Um, so, that, yeah, that's where all that, that's, that, that's what I started off doing. So what was the big sporting event in, uh, in BBC Suffolk? What did oh, you get well, your teeth on well, you know, the, 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 you had the, 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 uh, the, the turn up derby, you know, between, uh, between Norwich and Ipswich was always a big one. Um, I was a United fan. I had to cover the nine nil drubbing, uh, Ipswich got, Ipswich town got the hands of United in my first year there, but there's a big football, big football area, obviously. Um, rugby, not, not so much, actually. Uh, there, there's some good clubs up there. Ipswich have a nice club, but, um, yeah, uh, no premiership clubs really. So nope. uh, football dominated everything, you know. Where did the rugby link come in then? Because it obviously wasn't BBC Suffolk. It was well, just volunteer to, to go to games and do a bit of, do a bit of comms. How how did that come about? Well, do you know how? Well, rugby's always been part of my life. My dad was a was a, a decent enough rugby player. Could have been could have been even better, uh, except that he 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 just loved all sport. He was a great sailor, good boxer, good runner, nice golfer. Not a brilliant golfer. Uh, but uh, a decent enough golfer. So we played all sports, and I guess that's where it became a bit infectious in our house that we all wanted to get involved in different kinds of sport. But rugby was really the thing uh, for us and our family, and uh, I was in Lansdowne Road in a pram and, you know, a few a few times a year from that age up, and um, I went to a school called Blackrock College in Dublin, which is a big oh. rugby school. I was a terrible rugby player, I should add now. <laughs> awful but i was an enthusiastic rugby player and i i still try and tug out when i can i love it um but uh i guess in terms of broadcasting you kind of get drawn to what you're into don't you Mm. but and and i'll tell you it's a true true story right my my cousin sean morgan was um the captain of the queen mary and westerfield is that college in the east end near bow and he was he was captain of their rugby team and they needed a, a couple of fillers in for a match they had and i played a match for them one saturday morning and the payoff was that eight of us were going to Twickenham, where England were playing um, France uh, in a Five Nations game, as it was back then. And we were going to be streaker squad. No. So we got kitted out in full England kits, the purple track suits, and two of us were allocated to each corner. And if a streaker ran onto the pitch in Twickenham, we had to bail on the pitch, slam him in a tackle and drag him <laughs> off. And uh, but I am um, I had a I had a mobile phone. I told work I was doing this, and I said, "Look, why don't I report in?" Uh, this is before you know broadcasting yeah. uh, rights got too tight, and uh, but I uh, and I had this massive phone with me pit side, and I, so, I'd kind of call in the tries and stuff about attacking strippers. <laughs> I completely misunderstood that. I actually thought the story was going to be. We played rugby and we got the got the tickets on the understanding that we do some streaking at half time. I thought it was like some sort of like initiation process, no, but actually, uh, 
you have to go and catch <laughs> catch the streakers should should they That's right. yeah they used to have a thing called streaker squad um and uh, there is a photograph out there because uh, the french were playing and they let a cockerel loose on the pitch yeah. and i was told to run after it and just in front of the old west stand i nearly had it and it ran between my legs and in the telegraph the next day there was a picture of my skinny little pins and a, and a cockerel running through my legs but uh yeah that's uh, and that was the first live rugby match i reported in from that's amazing <laughs> So uh, just um, going off on a tangent on, on streakers for a second. Now, <laughs> if I remember correctly, and I don't know if you know or not, but, uh, I mean, streakers, when they used to run on, they used to be filmed. And now the cameras just kind of pan away. And it's, it, I guess, to avoid giving them the attention that, that they wanted. But uh, apparently the reason they did that is because in Australia, someone started streaking or no, s- someone was streaking with Vodafone across their chest and they couldn't be sure <laughs> if companies were paying people now to go streaking. <laughs> That's great. Well, I thought he was going to say he had a Vodafone written somewhere else. He was like an impressive <laughs> fella. Fair play to him. Uh, is that right? Really? I'm yeah, that's, sure that's amazing. Because <laughs> that just pans away and you, and you carry on chatting, don't you? And someone might, someone might say something, but you never see them. No, we're not allowed to talk about them anymore. Are we and not? you're not allowed to show them. So I remember when I did Six Nations with BBC, we always just avoided it. Always avoided it. But I remember one time being in, uh, uh, it was when France won, France won the Six Nations after beating Wales in Cardiff in the middle game on the Saturday. Do you remember? You know, the, 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 yeah. It was the middle game. And they were waiting on the result from maybe Scotland, Ireland. I can't, I can't quite remember. And John Inverdale was at... Um, was in uh, Edinburgh or wherever the trophy they thought was going to be delivered, but they had a, a sneaky second trophy just in case uh, the results went askew and France ended up winning. So it ended up that I had to present the uh, the trophy to to France um, in Cardiff uh, in a re- in, in like on the steps near the dressing room. So it was all very odd. But oh, anyway, yeah. throughout the course of the day, they came back to me at halftime in their game. They came back to me and I was in the dressing room in Cardiff with the French team. Uh, with Thomas Castagnard to get uh, you know his thoughts as they watch the other game unfold, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as I'm chatting to him, um, I, I can't remember. I'm not even going to name the player, but there was a player <laughs> stood behind Thomas Castagnard who just dropped his towel. Oh, did and just, and, and like six and a half million people Saturday afternoon, BBC One, and your man's lad is just hanging out there. Like, <laughs> I'll never forget it. That the director was shouting at me, say something. I went, well, uh, <laughs> there was a French cockerel you didn't quite expect to see today. And, uh, but Very we, uh, good, that, that, Very that was, good. Um, that was legit streaking. That's okay. You're allowed to do that still. <laughs> well, there is a rugby player that I know of, and I'm not going to name his name uh, for the same reason. But I do know that every time they did the... They they did the do the changing room and they and they pan through. Oh yes. Well, yeah. it was well, it was it was his goal every time to drop his towel as soon as they did it. <laughs> that sounds like most rugby players yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does actually. So, would you say you're a broadcaster first and then a sports fan, or primarily a sports fan who does broadcasting? A uh, sports fan first, you know, because I was a sports fan before I was a broadcaster. I was a sports fan as a. As a child, I was brought up in a in a house that loved sport, and um, you know none of us were particularly proficient at it. My dad would have been the best sportsman of us all, but uh, we played everything, you know, and certainly I did. And um, so always, always into sport. And then when I was a kid, my brother and I used to do kind of pretend. So my brother is a BBC uh, a, a journalist, 
Okay. Uh, for six o'clock news, ten o'clock news, today program and all that. Yeah, Keith Doyle, and he um. So he he aspired to be a journalist. I wanted to be in sports. So we used to do mock oh, really? uh, radio programs when we were like nine and ten and stuff. And uh, so that's where that's where the kind of bug really bit, I guess. And then we worked for a community radio station down the road. You know, some little local station, and um, yeah. So you kind of you end up if you're lucky, you end up doing what you love in an area you love. And I guess that's I've been lucky. <laughs> took a few odd routes and went around a few roundabouts, but got here in the end. <laughs> so, 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 what did your dad do? Uh, and was it linked to broadcasting? No, but my dad, um, my dad was uh, in the motor trade, so he had a couple of garages and he had a service centre. Uh-huh. He was the first person to have an automated car wash in Ireland. Wow! Such a big deal, in fact, that it was in the front page of the Irish press and newspaper back then. Um, but he, and he once served John Wayne. Your younger listeners won't know who John Wayne is, but look him up. He was a legend. And uh, so that was his thing. But dad wanted to be a, an actor. And uh, back in the day, his father wouldn't let him be an actor. He said, that's not for real men. And he sent him off to work for Ford in Cork, in County Cork. And he wasn't allowed to uh, become an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only when he got older, he started doing amateur dramatics and that kind of thing, you know. But uh, I always felt sorry for him. You know, that's the way people thought back then, I guess. But yeah. uh, so it was, there was a deep love of showing off, I guess, somewhere. <laughs> so did so with him not being able to become an actor, did that mean he became more supportive with you and your brother in your broadcasting? Yeah, he was. You know, I remember saying to him when I was like 11 or 12, I wanted to be a professional golfer. And we went up to the Grange Golf Club and he said, right, if you're going to do that, we're going up there in the summer every morning at half six in the morning. I lasted two mornings. And he said, you know, you're not really you're not really cut out for this. He was really funny with sport. I mean, he's still alive. My dad, I love him, but he's he's, he's not terribly well, but he's still with us. Um, but uh, I remember playing a match, uh, playing a match for Kildare, North Kildare against Monkstown, which is a Dublin club. So it was a big deal trying to beat the Dubliners. And at the end of the game, I remember I got really stuck in. I said, Dad, how did I play? And he went, how many tries did you score today? I said, well, I, did, I didn't. I nearly got one. He said, how many, how many did you score this season? Bear in mind, I was playing like a centre, centre stroke scrum half. I said, I've scored two. It would have been over like 12 games. He said, well, that's maybe, that's how good you are. <laughs> so I kind of guessed yeah. broadcasting might be the route to take and not actually playing the sport. <laughs> so, so tell me this, could, could you have seen your career going a different way and you ending up doing something completely different other than sport? Because I do seem to remember in your early days, you were doing, you were, you were doing holiday shows and whatnot. Yeah, so, so this is how it used to work back in the day. You'd get into the BBC and you try and work your way through it. And you didn't really care what you did for them. You just got in with them. And so when I was working in radio, I I ended up getting a job with a company called Buena Vista for a while in TV. And from that, the producer on that worked on a show called Tomorrow's World. And they needed a a younger journalist on Tomorrow's World. And as I was a journalist and younger and I was inexperienced, I went over there and I did three years on that. And with always keeping an eye on trying to get into sport, because I was in the building, right, the old TV centre. It's just like, get into the building and then figure out the next bit. Uh, but then at the time, Jill Zando, who sadly uh, was sadly killed shortly after I joined up, um, decided to leave the holiday programme. And they said, look, do you want to do this? And at that stage, you're like, oh, OK, I can, I can keep trying to get into r- doing rugby primarily here in golf. Um, but this is it. like... I'm, I was 23 or 24 or something. I said, so what's the job entail? I said, well, we're, we're going to send you on about 28 trips around the world a year and pay you for it. So, yeah, I'm there. And, you know, uh, you, you can't not do that job. And then whilst doing that job, the people in Grandstand and a great man called Carl Hicks 
brought me in for a chat and said, would you like to start doing some rugby for us when you're not traveling? And that's, so I was kind of doing it at the same time, but I was a reporter and stuff. You wouldn't have always seen me. And it was a really good way to learn, learn the trade, you know? But tell you what, what, what a life for a 23 year old. Yeah. Crazy, crazy life. I was with, I was with the producer. Really. We met, we met for a coffee to reminisce and we we're just saying, you'd never give that job to a 23 year old now. Goodness no way. Hell. You know, I mean, I, we report on stuff, but I mean, yeah, you're having a lot of fun as well. I mean, you're, you're 23, 24, you're a bit loose, you know? Yeah. Um, it was a good crack. <laughs> God, that, that's absolutely incredible. So, I mean, my, my follow-up my follow-up question to, to that was going to be something along the lines of, you know, knowing what you know now and how the media, you know, has evolved and all the rest of it, would you, would you rather be starting out now than back then? I mean, clearly the answer to that one is no. No, 120 countries later or whatever. No, um, no, I think it's really hard now because I think there was the, the back in when I started, there was a process. So, you, you know, either you went through the traditional route, which was you got your undergraduate degree, you went and did your postgrad in journalism and you'd learn how to. So people in my age, we all can do T-line, like shorthand. You can type 100 words. When I think about 100 words a minute, all this stuff. But you also did your, your law exam and, and journalistic law exam. So you did all these things. Then you got into a radio station or a newspaper and you worked your way through. Um, so what, kind of once you got in into that chain of events, things tended to happen for most of us. I think everyone from my year in LCP certainly ended up in broadcasting um, in various forms of it. I think now uh, there are so many different routes in, which is also brilliant, mm. but it makes it very, very competitive. I don't think it was as competitive back then. I think you could find your way in um, and you could stay there forever. Now you're, you're watching your tail a lot. You know, there's a lot oh, yeah. of really good young people coming through. Well, I, I think now it's a much broader base. So you can get in through so many different routes. I mean, I just think about... You know, as you said then, I mean, you know, the law exam, uh, the journalistic training, you got to go to the BBC, and now you've got guys who are really top of their game. Uh, I'm just trying to think of someone off the top, top of my head. Someone like, um, someone like uh, Charlie Morgan, who is now at The Telegraph, who came through yeah. doing blogs and watching rugby. And I think that's, that's, that's equally as good. I think that's fantastic. I think that's brilliant. But you've got, you got to remember back then, you worked for local radio or a local newspaper or a national radio station or a national newspaper or a national television channel. They just you didn't have we didn't have blogs. Yeah, it didn't exist, you know. And uh, there was no other way in. Um, I think it's brilliant now. You can cheapers. You can be so creative in so many different ways with the sports you love and the things you love. Now broadcasting is is such an exciting business, isn't it? Oh. And, and now there's just so many elements to it. It's I think it's better for it. It's more interesting, isn't it? Well. What do you think makes a good sports sports presenter? Hey JB, I'm still trying to learn that one, but um, you're doing okay. I, okay, is it great? I, I think when when I when I watch the people I like, I won't start naming them, but I will. I tell you, I'll, I'll point out Steve Ryder, who I still think is the greatest sports broadcaster on the planet. And I would I, how he's not still doing. He does the British Touring Car Championship, which is a good watch, but he. Uh, I'd have him doing sport all the time. He's the most brilliant golf presenter. And I used to watch him at the, at the open and Scottish open and, uh, the British open. And, and he'd, uh, he'd be at the, on the 18th green, just like on live for like eight hours, you know, and just editing the show from his little seat with the screen and so relaxed and telling stories, but not lecturing us, uh, mm. but just talking to us and, and turning sport into stories and making us kind of, uh, empathetic to, to different individuals and uh, just really clever and, and calm and um, he held it all together. 
that that's a really solid broadcaster. I think sometimes the waters can be muddied a little bit between broadcasting sport, telling stories and entertaining. And that's just what's required these days. And look, I'm, I do sometimes I go over the top on that myself. I get too excited. But, you know, the beauty about sports broadcasting is it's not a it shouldn't be about you, the presenter. It should be about the people on the pitch. They're the stars. You're just a little conduit for them. Mm. Um, that, they're the really good guys. In saying that, I think more is asked of us now. They, everyone wants the, their their presentation to be a little bit different and their their channel to be a little different. So you got to add, give a little way, a little bit more of yourself away these days. I think. Yeah, you need that sort of point of point of difference, I guess. And I always think of your point of difference, Craig, being your immense enthusiasm for the game of rugby. I am. I love it. I was brought up on it. Uh, I've been surrounded by it all my life. I've played, you know, I, I've got the same friends I made at six years, six years old when I went to the junior part of Blackrock College and we all played rugby together and uh, guys I played rugby with in wherever it was in Kildare or in Canada or in Blackheath. And, you know, you still bump into them. It's like you, you, you're with them a week before. There's a special bond with it. Mm. I think it's the most fascinating sport to talk about because it's not a ball-following sport. I think football, and no disrespect to it, but it's a ball-following sport. I'm, mm. I'm kind of, you know, maybe you're looking for a runner trying to catch the offside trap and looking for a through ball. But in rugby, everybody's doing something. All 30 people on the pitch are doing something all the time. And it's just brilliant to watch. I think you get so much excitement out of it. And it's in your blood, you know, if it's, if it's in your blood. And it's helped me out so many times in the past. You know, when I, you know... When I started with BBC and I was presenting Grandstand, probably a bit too early for me, and I wasn't great at it, and I went to the Olympics and it wasn't great. Um, you know, I, I, my future was looking pretty bleak at the BBC at that stage, but it was rugby that saved my career because I started doing rugby and my love for it came through. And I went, oh, actually, hang on. If we put them on the right things, this is going to be okay. In my life itself, you know, uh, when things have happened in, in my life, sad things or bad things, it's usually a rugby club or friends from rugby that have kind of helped me out. Um, you know, I, I recall sad things when I was a kid and, and my, my dad taking us down to the rugby club to tell us, you know, when, when, you know, my mother lost a child. I remember that I'm so well in St. Mary's rugby club and dad being surrounded by his, his old teammates and the tightness and the family that rugby provides. And so it's, it's quite deep rooted, isn't it? But I, I guess for some people that's rugby, for some people that's, football, knitting clubs, bridge clubs, whatever. I think you need to have something like that in your life. I'm just lucky that I work in the area that has always provided me with that. Yeah, and through, I mean, Irish listeners will obviously know. English listeners might not. Uh, you know, Blackrock College, that, that's an incredibly good way to get a rugby grounding. <laughs> it's, it's not shabby, good. is it? Yeah, it, it's... It's So in Ireland, um, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not familiar with how it works in Ireland, that... Um, Every province, um, Munster, Ulster, Connacht and Leinster have their own schools competition. And in Leinster, the Leinster Senior Cup is, I think, arguably the biggest of them. I'll get into trouble for that. But uh, Blackrock College have won it, I, I think it's 68 times, maybe 69. Uh, and to see Senior Cup final day, which has always been in, well, Lansdowne Road when I was in school. Um, and you have 20,000 people watching these school kids play at this match. It's massive. But it's incredible. It's what. Uh, but like it's what happens to these guys afterwards. I remember watching Luke Fitzgerald play for Blackrock College in a, in a senior cup final in March and him playing against the Pacific Islands, getting his first cap in the final game in Lansdowne Road uh, the following November. So 
and, and it's even got bigger than that now. School rugby in Ireland is essentially acad- an, an academy. Yeah. Um, for senior rugby. So uh, St. Michael's College in Leinster is the one that's really uh, flying the flag at the moment. They're doing really well. But, you know, all around the country, it's it's massive. They are, they are branching out, thankfully, and clubs are getting more of a look in finally. But, no, in terms of, 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 of rugby, BlackRock is uh, is big news. But um, maybe that's why I played third, fourth team all my <laughs> life. Um, but I was in, I was in, in, in school in, in the year with guys like Niall Woods, um, who played London Irish Harlequins and and, uh, and Ireland, of course, Shane Byrne, Victor Costello, Mark McDermott, the Russia coach, uh, the names, endless names, you know, um, of great players. Yeah, I, I think over in England we don't have a real idea of how big it is, but luckily, because I'm in Manchester, I am surrounded by Irish people. And they will tell you, if they went to Blackrock or somewhere like that, they will tell you. And for the first few months, it doesn't really register, but they carry on telling you until you have to engage, and then... Then you realise, yeah, actually, this is this is actually pre- pretty important stuff. Well, there is an old saying around here: is how do you know if someone went to Blackrock College? Yep, <laughs> they'll tell you exactly. Um, but like, I know uh, we get a lot of grief for it, but you, you're very. I think when you're in school for any school for that length of time and you love it, you're very proud of it. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, they're very close to it. It's exactly the same with the English schools, like Sedbergh yeah. or Millfield or wherever they went. You'll soon find out. Yeah, and also, you know. Schools like that, uh, they're always seen as the posh Dublin schools, you know, and you get, you know, over here in Ireland, sometimes I get, I get, they use that as a stick to beat me with, but they don't know how hard my parents worked exactly. and, you know, two jobs, three jobs, post-dated checks, all those things and how they struggled to put us through that school. So I think in, in, out of respect of their effort, you should be proud of what they gave you with that education, you know? Comple- completely. That's agree. very sincere, isn't it? And grown up. Sorry. Yeah, it is. I, I, I you know, I, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, I went to private school. I'm one of four, but I'm the only one that went to private school because I've got really bad dys- dyslexia. And people say, yeah, you paid for your school, but that's only part of the story. You know, everyone's got their own story to tell about how they got to where they are. It is what it and is. And did it, did it work for you? Uh, well, um, results are not quite in yet, Craig. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, tell me this then, just going back to broadcasting. Are there any events that you don't do that you'd like to do any sports that you'd like to cover um i'd love to go and do more golf i always love doing golf um uh, it's a great sport to do because it's just like it's so visible isn't it you're in their dressing room you know you're in their changing room you're seeing the emotions there's no hiding place for golfers so your storytelling which yeah. sports broadcasting essentially is it's 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 easy fodder isn't it um Oh, wow. I'd love to do another Olympics. I did one Olympics. I made an absolute arse of it. And I'd love another crack at it why, to get it right. Why do you feel that you didn't go so well in, in, in the Olympics? I, I didn't. I was undercooked. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was with a, I, I, I was hosting alongside a brilliant broadcaster in Claire Balding. And you know when someone's doing it and you're not. And you're like, oh, no, I'm so out of my depth. But it was a long time ago. And I, I hadn't really learned the trade. And uh I kind of learned a bit more about it now, so I'd love another, I'd love to fix that. Um, in terms of other sports, um, gosh, I've kind of done a bit of everything. I, I, I did. I used to do a lot of triathlon, and I got into triathlon because of it, and ended up racing quite a lot. And I ended up in the Irish age group team actually in the World wow. Championships a few years ago, and years that was ago. a great sport to cover. I enjoyed that a lot. So, sorry, did you say a few years ago? Yeah, about uh, I don't know when it was. Maybe seven, eight years, eight, nine years ago. Wow, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, I raced in um, I raced in Hamburg in the World Championships for Ireland, uh, and it was cool. 
it was great. I didn't really train very well up to it. We just had another child. I have four kids. We just had another child. I didn't, I didn't taper very well, so I was banjaxed. But I didn't come last, but I didn't win. That is still <laughs> a great effort. It was great, you know, and you get to wear the Irish strip and, you know, the flag raising and all that. And, yeah, it's cool. I'm actually getting back into it. I'm, I'm, uh, I've rejoined the club and I will have a little look, see where the European Championships are in a, few, in a year or two. Might give it another crack at my age group. We'll see. I absolutely love that. So right at the start of our chat, you mentioned you've teamed up with a guy who's played a bit of rugby in Brian O'Driscoll. And he's played a bit. Yeah, yeah. Bit. once or twice. And uh, you produced a documentary, Shoulder to Shoulder. Now, uh, I've seen it. Anyone who's watched BT Sport will have seen it, particularly if you're a rugby fan. But for those that haven't, can you just describe what it is? Yeah, um... Ireland's in a very unusual situation that um, we're a small island, but we are uh, divided uh, by um, a border. So the Republic of Ireland is 26 counties and the, there are six northern counties that are part of the United Kingdom. And um, this is the big uh, sticking point when it comes to Brexit at the moment. Mm. Um, so basically, I can get in my car and drive uh, one hour, 20 minutes into a different country, which is, is kind of odd because everything looks the same, yeah. sounds the same. Um, but it's a different country. Um, and it's been like that for, uh, for you know, the, almost 100 years. Uh, we have had a long, long history um, of, uh, of, of war and, and battles and political discord between, uh, political battles between England and Ireland over those six counties. And uh, we were, you know, Ireland was British up until uh, 1920s. So when uh, when the uh, the border was created and Northern Ireland was created, um, it would seem like the sensible thing to do to give it its own rugby team because that's one of the football team. Mm. But what the IRFU, who run rugby in the country, said, no, it's still, in terms of rugby, one island. So this rugby team will represent all 32 counties of Ireland, be them in Northern Ireland uh, or be them in the Republic of Ireland. Um, so that's all fine. That's all happening through the 40s and 50s and all that. But then the troubles, which we call the troubles, began uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's when um, the Catholics really started to kind of uh, protest about how they were being treated. And uh, then there was a lot of paramilitary activity, uh, Republican and loyalist paramilitary activity, uh, both sides carrying out absolutely heinous acts, killing innocent people, just a dread, dreadful, dreadful uh, couple of decades. But even during that time, the country played as one rugby team. And what's incredible about that is on that rugby team, there were members of the British Army and there were guys who had uh, Republican backgrounds and they still got on under the banner of rugby. Uh, which is when you look at all the problems across the world right now and you think, gosh, if you can find one common love, one common thing, maybe you can get on because that Irish rugby team, particularly during the 70s and 80s, proved that. So it documents that story. But to do that, we had to, um, Brian O'Driscoll had to kind of really delve deeper and get in there and, and find out more about it because actually Brian would have, you know, he's young enough to kind of have missed a lot of the real horrors of the mm. troubles. So he kind of delved back in to find out more about it. And he uh, now infamously went up and joined an Orange Parade. An Orange Parade is where the uh, staunch Unionists up in Northern Ireland march on the 12th of July uh, through wherever, uh, you know, various towns and streets, some of them Republic areas, celebrating uh, William of Orange's uh, battle, uh, his victory uh, over Catholic troops, which is 
you know, the genesis of it all. Yeah. And uh, it's quite antagonistic, uh, it can be, but also in some communities, it's like their St. Patrick's Day, it's like their George's Day, you know. So Brian kind of went and um, went and uh, got stuck in there and he came in for a lot of criticism, but he learned a lot about it all. And it's uh, one of the many really dramatic moments, but there's an amazing moment, David Duckham in the documentary it talking incredible. about uh, when, uh, oh, it's a beautiful moment. And he's talking about when, no, Scotland and Wales wouldn't play uh, in the in the 70s. They wouldn't come over and play in this particular Five Nations tournament because there had been a lot of bombing going on. And England uh, still came over and played. And they got an unbelievable reception at Lansdowne Road. It's a very moving part of the documentary. So the documentary, Shoulder to Shoulder, tells that story. And uh, Brian does a great job of it, to be fair to him. And just to go back to what you were saying about the David Duckham part of, part of the documentary, that is seriously one of the most moving scenes and interviews i've seen on tv for a very long time it is everyone says that i, I can't watch it without kind of shedding a tear um it's very moving um because he means it he just yeah. means it so much i think it's a fact that you think of duckham and all those rugby players as big hard men and they're from an era where emotions aren't particularly cheap so to see him getting so emotional about something which happened 30 years ago uh, it really strikes home yeah maybe you're right Maybe you're right because they were hard guys. They were hard men, yeah. and um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a really poignant piece of it. Um, I think we are all struck by that. And uh, when David Irwin brought Brian up to the, where the Killeen bomb is, with the end of the end of the rugby career of Nigel Carr, one of Ireland's greatest ever back row forwards, and uh, just in the trade, he was on his way down to a training camp for the 1987 World Cup, and uh, uh, they there was a bomb. And they were caught up in it and uh, they were looking to survive it. But Nigel Carr never played rugby again because of it. And uh, they go back to that spot. And my word, that is yeah. powerful stuff. It really is powerful stuff. Um, if it, so I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping that might be shown on terrestrial television at some stage um, in around the Six Nations time. Oh, it uh, should be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, hopefully. So now, everyone can see it. Now... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The, the other bit that you alluded to is Brian with, Brian with the marching band. Now, for me, I just found that kind of just interesting TV. I thought that's quite nice. You know, you kind of go mm. and see both sides. I assume it wasn't taken in quite the same spirit over in Ireland. No. Um, y- you know, uh, not even... Re- I mean, Republicans, certainly nationalists, they're, they're the people who want us to have a 32-county island and don't want the separation, mm. um, would be very upset by that. They'd feel very threatened and intimidated by uh, the orange, uh, you know, orange lodges, orange men and the orange marches mm. um, because that, in effect, ce- celebrates the thing that upsets nationalists and republicans the most the division the border uh and so um they weren't too happy about it when because i think what happened was everyone f- 
showed it, filmed it on their phones and then put it up on social media. So there was oh, no context. Really? It was just like Ireland's greatest ever rugby player playing a lambeg drum. Because as you know, in any conflict, it doesn't matter where it is in the world, there are, there are symbols are really important. And the lambeg drum would be as big a symbol of unionism as a flag, uh, you know, and uh, or a sword, you know. So so when he played that drum, that was people said, what are you doing, man? Now, in the documentary, when they saw the context and the whole idea of you having to really walk in another man's shoes, I think when they contextualized it, they made a bit more sense of it and everything calmed down a bit, you know. Now, it's probably better if I ask Brian this question, but, you know, what was his reaction when, you know, you actually suggested, well, this is what we're going to do. And, th- uh, you know, here's where you're going. And these are the people that you're going to meet. Well, it was really interesting. Um, this idea has been bubbling around in my head for quite a long time because it actually, the genesis of it is, as Keith Wood told me many years ago, Keith Wood's a good old friend of mine, that we're talking about the anthem because a lot of people ask, why do we have Ireland's call and not just our own anthem, which is our own Levine, the soldier's song, it's sung in Gaelic and it's very much a, a nationalist song. Um, so the reason is that the guys from Northern Ireland couldn't sing that song publicly. Uh, either they wouldn't want to, or singing it and then going back to Belfast could be, you know, trouble for them. So they'd have to stay quiet. Um, and Keith Wood was telling me that, I think before his first cap as captain, the Northern Irish guys sang it to him in the team room, which I found incredibly moving, you know, um, that it must have been hard for them. They yeah. felt they should do that for him. And I thought, there's a story in that. There's a maybe a documentary in that. And we played with the idea for a while and then, kind of always sat there and then when brian and i set up the company i was like we're talking about it and he said oh yeah i remember that I said, well you should you should do it and i said but the only if you're going to do it you know you're going to have to do it not go to an orange march but he was unbelievable he's like yep yep i get it wow i get it he said he understood you know all the qualities i mean i've got to know brian very well over the last kind of good few years but all the qualities you saw in him as a player he showed what's making the documentary, perhaps not always on camera, but behind camera, the way he dealt with everybody he met. You know, this honesty, this clarity of thought, this ability to park his ego and understand that he had to do that to tell the story and just how good he is with everyone, you know, yes. um, a real team man. I, like, I, yeah, I always liked him, but I have to say my estimations of him as a, as a human really went up in the making of it. He was brilliant. Yeah. I think that stands out actually, and you know, no doubt that's partly because of who he is, and you know, he's a big sporting icon. But you can tell he's got you know, an innate skill with people. Yeah, he's got time for everyone, you know. And uh, you know, being a famous person or famous sportsman or actor or whatever will will get you through the first door. Mm. But you know, to stay in the room, you got to be a nice person, and um, and he is. So you know, I mean, not all sportsmen. I remember as a kid, <laughs> my dad bringing me to a golf tournament. And a very famous British golfer from the uh, 80s, uh, a major winner. Um, I, I, he said, I, I said, I'd love to get his autograph, Dad. And I was only like 11 or 12. And uh, I went up and asked for the autograph and the golfer told me to F off. So. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, really? right? So not everyone's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just you're... I stood on the 18th green. I did the British Open for three years to the BBC. I stood on the 18th green. I was, one of my jobs was to do the interviews on the 18th green. And I stood on the 18th green waiting for him to come in so I could ask him about it live on BBC One. Oh, I never I never got to. What a shame. And he missed the cut. So, oh, well, tough shit. Never mind, eh? <laughs> well, one of the things I love about doing interviews in rugby and operating in this little space is that the majority of people that I meet 
or usually really, really nice. I think only once have I ever come across someone who's either rude or dismissive or you know something like you've had. All in all, most most high profile rugby players that, that I've met have been absolutely wonderful. Austin Healy's okay when you get to know him. <laughs> oh fine. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Except except for Austin, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a dote. He is an absolute pussycat, by the way, an absolute pussycat. Um, and uh, he, he's a he's a great bloke. Um, yeah, they're good people, aren't they? Mm. They're good people. I met there was a few of them I used to be terrified of, and then you get to know them, and they get to know you. I, I guess with some of them, the older school guys, you gotta you gotta earn your stripes a little bit, you know. Yeah, and, and they trust you. You're in, you know. Yeah, there is a big difference actually between the older school guys and how they got there and how they earned it and their attitude compared to the more media savvy guys who I deal with now who are playing. Who was the nightmare then? Go on, tell us. Who was it? Am I allowed to? Yeah, go on. <laughs> no, there's no, <laughs> there's no way. There's no way. Um, England, England player, current England player? Current English DOR. Actually, I will tell you one uh, because I can. One of the hardest people to actually get to know and get to know, get any information out of, depending on what day day you catch him. And this isn't the guy that I was referring to before, but is Steve Diamond. I mean, oh, yeah, if that guy's not in the mood to talk, you've got a real handful. <laughs> I love him. I love him because he's such a character and he's so different to all the others. That's the great thing about he the Premiership is, too, right? Let, let me you know, they're all so different. Uh, Steve is completely unique. I mean, like you've got to almost think about it like you're dealing with you know, a wild predator. It, you, know, you can't take it personally that you know it, it might attack, or you just can't. You just got to acknowledge it for what it is and be aware that it might attack at any time. That said, you still my choice of DOR. You, you need to go for a few pints out out with them. That's oh, yeah. fun. I'm, that I'm is fun. Sure. I'm yeah. Not sure. Yeah, that is fun. Uh, I love the. Uh, I like. I, I, I. Do you know? I genuinely. I, I think they're all great. And I'm just saying that there were a couple in the past I didn't like so much. I think they're all great. I think they're getting more near my age as well, which helps. But I love Dino. I love Dino because. As a player, the guy was magnificent. I loved it. It was just everything about English rugby was Dean Richards. And, uh, you know, his weep lip aside, um, he's been a fantastic director of rugby. And what he did at Leicester, the titles he won as a player, of course, as a director of rugby. But what he's doing at Newcastle as well. But what a fantastic bloke. You know, he's a big bike fan. He loves motorbikes. Is that right? And and, Mm. and the guy who loves motorbikes, would you believe it, is Steve Diamond? Oh, well, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I could see him and I kind of, yeah, blinged up Harley. Yeah, yeah I well, could see that. Yeah. Every time that he uh, achieves something, he gets a bike to basically uh, uh, commemorate it with. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, Dean is an interesting one because I think it just shows, like, there's so many different ways to run a team. And, you know, if you look at how Dino interacts with his players, I think he's far more forceful than, say, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, a Rob Baxter. Now, They've both won titles, but it's just a very interesting way that you can get two complete polar opposites. They do, don't they? Um, Dino has such a presence, doesn't he? Just, I'd, I'd imagine when he walks to that training ground, they kind of they start to shudder a wee bit. Um, but he backs his guys. Yeah, but so does Rob. They both. I think that's the core thing to both those guys. They absolutely back their players, absolutely back them and believe in them and give them that confidence. If someone like Rob Baxter... Or Dean Richards says, JB, I think you are a great player. Or I think you're a great broadcaster. You're going to leave feeling, you know, two feet at tall, aren't you? Yeah. They have that kind of power. They have that aura. Oh, ab- absolutely. And But they also have the, the, the complete opposite, uh, which is uh, <laughs> like, as much as they can build, build, build you up, 
they can tear you down pretty quickly. I mean, I've seen lads who've been spoken to by a DOR just you know, instantly when I've been in the building. Uh, and they're, you know, six foot seven or whatever. And they are reduced to men, the stature of five foot three in absolutely no time. And it's not, you know, shouting or bawling. It's just a look or an attitude or way that they address their players. And I think the key is you, you need to be able to do both, really. Yeah. It's like parenting. It is. Yeah. It's very, you very l- similar. Love, love with a little bit of fear. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, can you imagine how hard that is to do? I mean, these lads now who are playing are wealthy, they're in demand. You know, they probably don't need to listen to you too much because they can move clubs at a whim. Uh, they're very, very difficult guys to motivate now. And yet these DORs have got to find new ways all the time to appeal to, you know, these incredibly hard individuals to bend to their will. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredibly tough job. There's so much pressure now, isn't there? And um you know, the rumor mill starts and, you know, I think the likes of Todd Blackadder, you know, uh, this season and, you know, what's Todd, Todd going to do? Todd under pressure. And, you know, Todd had been told by Bruce Gregg that he was fine for another couple of years. You know, it's like, you know, that, that they had a plan in place and he was part of it for the next year or two. And But, you know, the story picks up pace, doesn't it? Social media, it just expands and grows and the fire gets bigger and bigger when, you know, yes. really there's nothing to, 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 to burn. It's just some of it's just rumor. Um it's also player power is is getting stronger, and we you know we have had occasions in the past couple of seasons where clearly players have got involved in in, uh, in, in uh, directors rugby having to move, to move on. You know, and we don't want to see too much of that. No, but there's also two dynamics going on there, which you don't really, really think about. On the one side, you've got the DOR who's between the players, as I mentioned before, and then the and then the owners, and managing upwards is just as hard as managing down. Um, and the other thing as well, and you tell me if you think this is this is a thing, but certainly over the last four years, it feels like rugby social media has grown exponentially to the point it's actually got quite a bit of clout now. Yeah, um, it has, hasn't it? And uh, it's it's as big as uh, it's as big as the the news papers articles now isn't it it's yeah it, the, the right tweet the right insta and everyone's yapping and um it's uh what i don't like about it is it can be very emotional sometimes um people send things out in so- social media when they're very emotional and and they don't always think about it and they don't take their 10 breaths and um, before they do it and sometimes the consequences of are big and it could it's wholly unnecessary if they just thought about it i guess back in the day you know you chat to a reporter who might go to the press office and everything will be calmed and you know do you know what i mean yeah. not that that was right either but i think um yeah there's a lot of very quick reaction and then it grows poosh, you know massive out of nowhere um it does mean though that we uh, get a lot more to talk about and <laughs> we like that too so you know yeah there's a balance i guess building your own narratives and talking about them um Ad nauseum. Well, that's basically what I do, actually. So, yeah, I, I'm very, very... <laughs> that's what we all do. <laughs> just, I just had a thought, like, about your documentary. Now, you wanted to go and make a documentary about rugby. And that makes sense. You work for BT Sport. BT Sport cover uh, rugby. And they're probably the best sports broadcaster in the UK. Did oh, that's it, very kind of you. Well, Thank you. Did any part of you kind of worry that you're going to bring BT Sport, who, 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 who've got this, you know, who are doing what they're doing, and you're saying, would you mind putting on a documentary about politics? And, and what was the discussion like <laughs> about that? Because I imagine that's difficult. Um, I don't think they knew it was going to be so political. Did they not? <laughs> you know, I don't, 
you know, you plan out these documentaries, but it's quite an organic process as well because you're you're you are storytelling and and then you someone will tell you something. You go, oh, gosh, let's go down that road a little bit. And next thing you know, you're you're down a deeper road than perhaps you thought initially. Um, I think BT Sport Films have in the last year or two tried to look deeper into. You know, there's only so many films you can do about you know uh, you know a great fight or. Uh, a great, you know, Champions League victory or something. You need a bit more depth to it. So they were actively looking for stories like this, and they still are. So um, I think we we're lucky um, it came along at the right time, really. Um, and they loved it because, like, I didn't realise so few people in the United Kingdom uh, uh, knew about the, knew so little about this. Uh, they, in general, people know very little about what happened in Northern Ireland and the relationship with the South. And certainly people under the age of 20 have zero idea. And that, and that counts for kids in the Republic of Ireland too. They they had no idea how bad it was. No idea. So I think uh, I think they're all fascinated in BT. They're like, oh my word, it was that bad, was it? Yeah. And, you know, this running theme of sport being the glue, of rugby being the glue, was a very strong one and a very emotional one and they got that as well you know but it's not only i should point out it's not only hockey is the same and boxing is the same boxing uh, all things yeah boxing um it's all one one uh, one team uh, for boxing on the on the on the island of ireland which is a, a funny one yeah. Yeah. well i mean thankfully i think we've had you know a whole generation who have grown up without uh, without any trouble whatsoever or should i say uh, you know limited 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 trouble so uh, you know it, it it just shows the direction of progress well, these are testing times, aren't they? You know, and, and I think when, you know, a couple of people have said to me, you know, well, what's the deal with the, with the border in Northern Ireland anyway, Brexit? It's really holding things up. Or it's, I said, you've no idea what it's like for some people. You've got to remember that when that border essentially was removed after the Good Friday Agreement, you had people who um, were living, you know, on the border and suddenly their community opened up to the other side of it, too. Uh, now they may have always had friends and stuff there but actually the practicality of that opened up to them you could have a farm that straddles the border you're you have a shop people are coming from both sides you know friends family relationships discos that you go to they call them discos still dances i don't know but you, do you know what i mean yeah, those yeah. simple small things and you're saying if we get this wrong we're going to put a wall up again we're going to make this really hard for you again you're just uh, this the damage is incredible you know never mind other old uh, old uh, embers that might be relit, uh, political embers that might be relit between uh, nationalists and loyalists. We don't give anyone an excuse to go back to those bad times. So yeah. um, I, I think it was really important we told that story as well, you know. And I think BT clocked that, that it was the time for that story to be told. A little reminder of why we got to keep the peace. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think your next project's going to be? Or, or have you already decided? Um, we have a couple. Uh, I have one that's completely bonkers, um, which I really, I really love the idea of, and I'm just working on that at the moment. Um, I have one that's fascinating. Um, I can't say anything about them just oh. yet. Um, but also, we kind of there's some very practical things we want to do. We're, we're doing as a production company. Our job essentially is we want to inform people about rugby and how it works, and uh, and um, you know some of it's that, but some of them are kind of films, and uh, yeah. Hopefully they all happen because you like them. One of them is completely bonkers. Well, I, I, <laughs> I want to tell you about it so badly, but I can't yet. I'll get these things one. take a long time. You know, it takes it takes that. I mean, it, you know, it takes a year to make one. You know, well, so how long did shoulder to shoulder take to make? Um, 
gosh, maybe eight months. Eight months. I, our first meeting with the director, Isabel Williams, is an unbelievably talented lady from, uh, she was formerly BBC Sport. She's the director. She's made some brilliant, uh, she made the Bradford Bradford uh, Fire documentary as well, and Mark Sharman, who was the producer. Um, I think for the, from when we met them and kind of sketched it out, probably eight months, seven, eight months. Now, you just said Mark Sharman is a producer. Mm-hmm. You're the, so... You're the producer. Are you an executive producer? What? Yeah, it's all, they're all just kind of funny names, aren't they? So um, we make these things, they tend to be co-productions a lot of the time because yeah. you've got a, one party that wants to do something, another party that wants to do something else. So Mark, Mark Sharman's with a company called TBI. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I'm obviously Three Rock, but also I kind of have a different kind of role in it because I was you know, I guess the idea came from over here and that kind of thing. So I was the executive producer and, uh, but there can be numerous exec producers, <laughs> but uh, uh, right, I was okay. quite an, I was quite an active one. Um, I still haven't quite got my head around all that. Uh, I, I'm still in the, whose idea was it? And who got the tea kind of guy? Who was that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, it's, um, it's, there's so many people involved. You can't believe it. It's, these things are there. There's an unbelievable amount of work and, Actually, going back to Brian, so many people are involved. Your 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 star guy, your right half, your kicker is the guy in front of camera, and you've got a level-headed fellow like Brian there keeping the team together. Um, it's a very easy job because you know not all uh, presenters are like that. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. <laughs> to be diplomatic, uh, does it give you a does it give you a new a new viewpoint on how hard these things are? are to do when you look at things like you know all the nfl documentaries that come out of there or you know the espn 30 for 30 i guess is the the um famous example yeah it's i I tell you what gives me an idea i mean i you know as a as a i guess as a journalist i'm used to you know working with other people putting stories together blah 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 it's the amount of footage to tell a story properly particularly those nfl stories they could have just a camp they because a lot of it's just actuality, isn't it? It's just real time. And I mean, you're just plowing through material and the heartbreaking stuff is the stuff you have to cut out. Yeah. You know, that could have been a three-hour documentary, shoulder to shoulder. You know, you have to, they're the really tough decisions. And Isabel Williams, I'd say, was, was brilliant at that. And uh, But you have some heated discussions uh, and make sure you leave the right stuff in. But it's, that's really hard. So when, you know, some of those, those NFL documentaries, I mean, you think, oh my word, the ratios of what they film to what they use must be extraordinary, oh, you know? Absolutely. Well, um, one of the really interesting things about the NFL is NFL Films, uh, where all the documentaries come from, that was set up in the 60s. And uh, yeah, a lot of people put the success on of the NFL down to NFL Films for being able to tell the story of the NFL so well. I mean, it was a fairly fringe sport in the, around the 60s. It was just, you know, some, some guys in weird helmets running about. Fast forward to... Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like... Fast forward to where we are now. I mean, it's taken a bit of a dip, but say five years ago, it was comfortably the biggest, biggest sporting um, entity on earth. You know, it might still be. So it was be- it was sixties all about baseball then, or basketball? Basketball was huge back then. Yeah, uh, the guy who I want to I can't remember his name now. Uh, there was a father and a son who start who 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 set up NFL films. It's Ed someone I can't remember now. Um, 
and that's what they did. They basically told wow. the story, and they were so good that they then got hired to do, you know, um, bits for you know all the, all the sporting movies uh, um, are, are probably their footage. They do things for basketball, but NFL films. That's you know for a lot of people. Well, that's, that's fascinating. That's what NFL. Wow. Does this augur well for Drico and myself then? Well, let's hope so. Production company. I mean, if you can carry on, <laughs> um, it. Uh, if, if if you can carry on having documentaries standard of shoulder to shoulder, you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> Let's hope so. Uh, right. Um, now, usually, I wrap this up by saying, where can we find you on social media? But we can't find you on social media. Can, can oh, yeah. No, you can. I'm on Instagram. Are you? Yeah. Can I just... Can I just... I'm going to... I'm Craig A. Doyle. At Craig A. Doyle is my Instagram thingy. And, and why not? name. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, and why not Twitter, Craig? Is it because you're too calm and mature and above all this? Because I kind of feel no, you are. Because I'm a I'm a drunk texter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a drunk tweeter. Um, I tell you what happened. I, I was never that into it. Um, I, I just didn't really get it. Uh, I'm a bit of an old fuddy-duddy, I guess. So I, I never really got it. And then I got. I, I was in it, and then I, I was doing okay. I was maybe not even a year, and I had, I don't know, I actually can't remember. I, I remember when it got above 20,000, you get a blue dot tick tick thing. I, yeah. I remember that. I thought, oh, this is okay. And then someone hacked me. Ironically, really? someone tweeted to, tweeted me to tell me I was hacked. Um, and I thought, gosh, I didn't know you could do that. So no, I just really? closed down the account for a week. And my wife said, oh, you're back. You're back. Great. Because I was on the bloody phone all the time, wasn't I? I didn't realize I was. And then another week went by, and next thing, after a month, it all ends. You lose all your followers, it all ends. And I've, it was fantastic. But I noticed when we hear about Twitter, the biggest noise off a Twitter story is usually a negative noise. Yeah. It's a negative story. And I thought, why, why would I want that in my life? You know, I've had, I've had, thankfully, I've had some great parts of my career, but I've had bits that haven't worked either. And, you know, I've been slagged off in newspapers and radio and and I know what that's like. Why would I invite another uh, vehicle for for negativity? You know, why why would you want that in your life? I realize it's got great use, but maybe I'm, it doesn't fit my personality. That's probably just it. It just doesn't suit me. I think it gets a bad rap. Okay. And it probably gets a bad rap. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. probably has a bad rap as much for people like me as anything else. And I think it only takes like, I don't know, one negative tweet to you and you think, God, everyone's against me. But then you have a look at your followers. You think, well, no, not really, because everyone's yeah. following me because I've got something to say, presumably. You know, they're not doing it because they don't like me. Uh, and then you kind of think, well, actually, yes, there are there is negativity out there. But the vast, vast majority of people that you interact with on um, on, on their ten, well, for me at least, tend to be good rugby following folk, and it is a shame that it gets a bad rap, and it does facilitate some bad behaviour. But on the well, whole, let's be honest, JB, there's no, you know, no one's going to write, oh, a hundred people like JB today. Exactly, they're right. going to say, oh, someone called JB an arse, and he called them an arse back. Boom, gone. We're yeah. up and running, you know. And I just, you know, back in the day when you're doing news stories, that still applies when I'm doing stuff. You know, you get three sources for story before you print it or talk about it. You know. Uh, this is like easy fodder it seems you know it's like i don't really get it <laughs> yeah uh, it's just good it's just good for general reach i guess um, so I, I get that as well i get as i said you know yeah there's definitely more good than bad in it but it just doesn't i have four children i commute <laughs> uh, and travel constantly and you know it just 
it's just it wasn't right for me and people look at me like i'm some kind of lunatic and they go oh did you have a really bad experience on it no i, I didn't actually i quite enjoyed it well i just find that life is easier for me without another thing i have to do well my best take on it was from um was from harry williams and his view was in every other resource scarcity is valuable so why am i putting out my opinion there because the more i put it out the less valuable it is I thought, oh, that's actually quite a smart way uh, Yeah, that's smart really smart. It. My so, word. Haven't English props changed? Haven't they just? What a shame. <laughs> well, uh, before we go then, uh, what, um, where are you off to this week and where will you be watching the internationals? Well, they had an international, of course. I know well. Do you know something? I didn't get... I just, I, I presumed I'd be in premiership duty. I didn't even think because I knew there was, there's like, there's three three games on Saturday. There's Bath, Worcester and... Ah, uh, Saints have or Wasps, I think, and Saris then have Sale, I think. So they're all happening on Saturday. I presume they'll be on one of those games. It's a Premiership weekend. So I didn't even bother looking for a ticket. And then uh, I realised, no, I'm not. I'm doing the Friday game, doing the Gloucester game on Friday, and I'm doing the Bristol game Sunday. So I've Saturday off. I'll tell you what, Gloucester um, getting a lot of airtime recently. What's that? Gloucester. Gloucester are getting a lot of airtime recently. Yeah, well, hey, they're playing decent rugby, aren't hey, they? Yeah, you know. I completely and, agree. Um, I think I think we all want Gloucester to do well, don't we? I think, you know, we want Gloucester and Quinns and Saint. We want a bath. We want them all back in the mix. We want more people gunning for those semi-final places, don't we? Yeah, well, rugby's a funny one because um, it is undoubtedly better when teams like Gloucester are good. But what we fail to recognise in, in rugby as well is, you know, exactly how many clubs have great, great histories and they can't all be number one at the same time. I think the same thing about Harlequins, Bath, another grand club, and all these clubs are better. Sorry, I should say rugby's better when these play when these clubs are good, but they can't all be good at the same time. No, but you expect good moments every few years, don't you? you yeah. Know? And I think we, because Gloucester and Wasps as well, I guess, have been just like on the edge. But I think Gloucester have shown signs that they can definitely be in the mix again. I think you kind of go, oh, that's a good story. Let's follow that story. And, um, you know, they're doing all right, aren't they? they Many have they lost? Two, one, two, two uh, games? Off the top of my head. Uh, lost two, I think, maybe. Um, have they got a draw somewhere along the line? Yeah, they had a draw. Yeah, I mean, they're fourth. Yeah, so I think it's two losses and a draw. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, decent. And you, you decent. Know. But this next block is fantastic. I love this next block of Premiership games because it's a, it's a real, like, it's a real little shuffler, isn't it, this one? It's a, they're a big set of games, these next few. Yeah, well, particularly for clubs that need wins and might benefit from internationals not being away. I know Sale are looking forward to playing Saracens this week, who well, obviously won't have their South Africans available. The, the big match this weekend, though, I know Ireland have New Zealand and I'll be watching that. I, I think I'll watch that from the sofa with my kids. I love watching the matches with my family because that's what we used to do. Yeah. If we didn't go to Lansdowne Road or if the game was away, we'd all watch at home and I love it. It's great. And it's Saturday night as well, isn't it? But on Sunday, uh, Wicklow under 11s are playing uh, Wicklow Town are playing my son's team and a scary football club in the under 11 county final uh, sorry that's uh, the big game is that football that's football that's a big game that's a 2.30 kick off in Arklow <laughs> uh, available on BT Sport uh, well I, I wish your son the best of luck in that one <laughs> pass it on pass it on he's giddy as he goes he can't sleep it's Wednesday and he can't sleep <laughs> he's so excited about it <laughs> right Craig you've been an absolute phenomenal guest um Remind us, um, remind us about the documentary, and uh, then I will uh, leave you to be on your way. 
Yeah, well, the documentary Shoulder to Shoulder and uh, features uh, Brian O'Driscoll uh, exploring uh, Ireland's rugby past and how it got to its present and the healing role of rugby on an island that's very divided. So it's uh, it's a really good watch and it's on BT Sport and hopefully um, it'll uh, it'll it'll go elsewhere around the world um, in the new year at some stage. Yeah. But don't forget Gloucester Leicester on Friday night. Well, that's, on that, BT Sport. that's quite important as well. <laughs> exactly right. Thank you very much, Craig. Really uh, yeah, your man, your man Tim Cock is doing all right, by the way. Uh, Tim, yeah, well, uh, he's got great natural aptitude for the role and I wouldn't expect anything less, not to mention his million-dollar wrists. <laughs> he's getting so good, we're going to let him sit down on the bus soon. Hey, he does okay. I, I think he's got a, a trilogy of box office interviews with Steve Diamond now. I love them. I love them. He doesn't. He's like a dog with a bone as well, Tim, but he does it in this kind of really nice way. He has got a... Uh, yeah, well, quite ruthless. <laughs> ruthless, um, yeah. I would say he just has no fear. It's it also like a lack of self-awareness of where he is or where it comes from, but just, <laughs> just how he rolls. Good stuff. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 